right, welcome to Jed Banger's Ball. I'm your host, Jed Mayhew. Today's episode is episode 20. We've made it to 20. By the next episode, we'll be able to drink on the air. Oh boy, why did I say that? Uh, not a good joke. I had a similar thing this morning. I went to an audition for uh, Malibu Rum. <laughs> they, want, they wanted uh, frat boys, I think that was like the uh, idea. And I, don't, I don't know, I got called in as a frat boy. I think they were looking for like Adam D- Devine, I think that's his name. He's uh, the like kind of the, the muscly guy on, uh, he's not muscly, he just says he's muscly. The guy on Workaholics, I think that was the idea. But they asked me afterwards, I, this guy came up to me in the parking lot and s- said he was doing a documentary about casting and commercial auditions and wanted to talk to me and I had to talk into like a selfie stick and he asked me what my worst audition was and I said something about how I went to a video game and they wanted an authentic Welsh accent and when I, I gave him like this bad Australian accent as a joke and the guy got mad at me and he threw me out of the audition and it was like at four in the afternoon and I was in Santa Monica and anyways Ward Robinson is on the show today uh, photographer musician he, he was a musician he's editor-in-chief of a, a, a new magazine called animals and a good good buddy of mine uh, I met him a, uh, about a year and a half ago we get into it in the interview about how we met but um, he was doing a photograph um, for the LA record for my band uh, and that's how I know the guy and and recently I just want to say uh, to his friend Tate we also talk about in the interview this, he recently hooked me up with uh, his buddy who was doing um, uh, a surf video, and they wanted some music, and, and I sent him some music, and they ended up using the music, and they sent me some shoes, and some pants, and a t-shirt, and and some and some more shoes, and pants, and stuff for, for the other guys in the band, and stuff, so everyone's got Reef shoes, and pants, and shirts now, so thanks to, to, to Reef. Uh, if you want to sponsor the show, uh, we, we can talk about that later. We, we're looking for sponsors. Anyways, let's talk to Ward Robinson. Yeah. Do you vape? No. You used to smoke, though. That was a long time ago. Yeah. Like 12, I think it's been 12 or 13 years since I've had a cigarette. Oh, okay. So you didn't... You didn't. I'd rather be kicked in the balls than vape anything. <laughs> I hate that shit. I, I like... I could stand next to somebody who smokes. I kind of miss the tobacco yeah. thing. Yeah, but vaping is horrible. It's the lamest thing ever. Yeah, it's it just it just looks brutal, right? I mean, that's part of the appeal of smoking is just the the look of it. It's cool. Yeah, it looks fucking cool. It is. It is cool. Yeah, kids. <laughs> I'm getting kind smoking of smoking is cool. Honestly, man, I'm getting kind of bored of it. Of smoking. Yeah. How long have you been doing it though? Twenty years. Okay, I've, you probably put your time in. Yeah, I feel like it. I don't. Same with drinking. I just feel like it's not so much that I don't. I like the taste of both. Mm-hmm. I just get kind of bored with it, and I feel like shit the next day, no matter what. Now, yeah. Well, even if I don't do either of them, I feel like shit the next day. <laughs> I'm not sure how you get out of that loop. <laughs> how do you feel the next day? Well, I don't do anything anymore. I'm I know, but you're older than I am. So straight edge, dude. I'm older than everybody. I know, but you're, I'm just saying. Like, do you feel like shit in the morning from like the Generally? past stuff? Like from like going to Grateful Dead shows like 20 years ago? I mean, 
It's hard to say because I feel that way every day. Now. That's what I'm saying. I yeah, feel like I shit every day now. Yeah, pretty much. I go surfing and then I feel like shit the next day or I drink drink all night and smoke all night and feel like shit the next day. So or why go would to work. you ever do anything healthy? I don't know. That's what I'm trying to figure out. Yeah, I mean, I... Um, actually, that's not true. I feel pretty good. You do? Yeah. What's your... Red, you eat like healthy shit though. Oh, God. You're like yeah. a juice guy. I wouldn't say juice. I I make sort of like a ridiculously healthy smoothie every day. Yeah, well, that's like a fucking. It's like a thick juice, sort of. Yeah, it's kind of like a thick juice. It's just like work. You don't put ice cream in it, though. Food is work. No, because I'm on this paleo diet. See, that's what I'm saying. I got stuck in it like three and a half years ago, and now I'm stuck. What is it? What What is that? It's basically no grains, no sugar, right? No legumes. And then nothing processed, but like everything processed has one of those other things in it. Right. So no, it's like, why can't you have grains? I don't know. I mean, look, I whole, thought it was like cavemen. Didn't they have like wheat and shit like no, out there? There no. were, there were no agriculture, but there was like nuts growing around. So they eat nuts. Oh, nuts. Right. Yeah. yeah. Legumes or beans. Right? Yeah. They didn't have beans though. No, nope. there weren't beans growing. Apparently not. All right. Well, cause you can't eat a raw bean. The whole thing is like. Our systems stopped evolving before we started growing stuff for our our own food, so we're not adapted to eat that stuff. Right. So it causes inflammation, and inflammation causes horrible disease. So this is three and a half years you've been doing this, mm-hmm. and you think it's working? I don't know. <laughs> what were you eating before then? I mean, I was like right right before then. I was actually relatively healthy, except. I like, I would eat like, um, I love Oreos and Cheez-Its because mm-hmm. if you, cause I can't eat that many Oreos in a row right? because they get, it's too sweet. But then if you have a box of Cheez-Its nearby, you can eat those to nice. cut through the sweetness Yeah, then that gets too salty. Back and forth. Back and forth. I can go through a box in a bag like in a night. So never. That was like probably five days a week. Five days a week of a bag of in a box of Cheetos and Cheez Its. No, not Cheetos. I don't Oreos. Have, here's what I'm not good at in life: <laughs> moderation. Yeah, I, I knew, I knew where that was going. Yeah, that sounds like you were. That sounds like you're just uh, at craft services. That's like that's, that's, <laughs> that's what your meal sounds like. Your diet. Yeah, it's I a craft services meal. Does any? I should have just been an extra so that I could just eat craft service all day. Yeah, that would have been good for me. That's fucking gross, dude. That, that, totally gross. Yeah. Well, see that my option is then to just eat retarded foods that nobody likes, like kale. Right. But you eat parsley. meat, though. Meat, meat is delicious. Do you cook it? Yeah, sure. Okay. Mm-hmm. You don't just eat raw meat. No. Cavemen cooked their meat. Right. In fact, there's- Is this, that proven? You, yeah. Well, you can see there's a- Yeah, because they can get the- they up, dig up the campfire. Right. The You can see there's a huge uptick in our brain size- around the exact same time that we started putting fire to meat. Right. So we if you don't eat meat, you're stupid. That's what that's telling me. They were also, like, knocking people out with clubs and, like, dragging women into caves and raping them. That was the only way to, that they could have sex back then. I mean, I think that you're getting that more from cartoons. <laughs> the first part. <laughs> So you're saying Catholic, there were no horny flew, women? They flew in, around in with a, times. They flew around by club. The guy, he, the caveman, he flew. That well, was that's he, science. Yeah. Yes, no, that part's true. All right. Anyways, 
<laughs> so you, you you grew up in like Sausalito, right? Like you're mm-hmm. you're from you're from the Bay Area, Marin County. Yeah. yeah, and and did you grow up on a boat down there? No, I, um, up on the hill on Spencer Avenue. My mom actually still lives in the same house. Forty four years later, she's been there. Wow. But there were we used to hang out down in that. There was a houseboats, Gate Five, and all that. Yeah, and that was um, that's where we would go and buy drugs. Right. A lot of time. There was all this network of little planks that connected all the sketchy houseboats together back in the early 80s, you know? Yeah. that All those people have been evicted long since. My friend grew up there, too. She grew up on, I think, one of those boats, too. And that was the scene that she told me about. But it wasn't like, uh, was Shel Silverstein, like, hanging out down there? And like I never saw Shel. No? I thought he was, like, on one of those boats. David Crosby was, but I don't know about Shel. Did you see David Crosby? No. No. I was not hanging out with that class of people. <laughs> we were just like trying hard not to get ripped off for $40 worth of weed. Yeah. That's what was happening. Was that the drug of choice? Yeah, on the houseboats, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You guys skate down there? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Or ride bikes. We had little Schwins. Yeah. What were your folks doing, though? Like, I mean, you said that your mom lived in the same house, but like, how'd they end up there? Big picture? I mean, they pretty much... Yeah, big picture. We got time. It's a fucking right. podcast, so... Jesus. All right. Uh, well, my dad grew up in, like, Virginia and then Washington, D.C., and uh, my mom grew up in Philadelphia, or Ohio and then Philadelphia, so they met, and then... Um, my dad's dad was in the State Department. He was actually McCarthy's right-hand man during the Red Scare and yeah. the blacklisting. He was the guy who was the axe man for McCarthy, so not a real pleasant Yeesh. fellow yeah and uh so my parents just sort of fled the east coast and came to california my fled your grandfather pretty much yeah yeah and uh but he's an architect or was architect so he um came out started his own firm in san francisco so when uh my sister was born they lived on vallejo street and then they moved to divisadero where i was born and we lived there till i was three and then we moved to sausalito what was it like? You you don't remember like growing up in the city at all then? Because not I mean, really. San Francisco has changed so much. I mean, I remember when I was a kid, not when I was three. Although I do remember being told that when they filmed the Bullet, they did it right in front of our house on Divisadero, and my sister used to go out and have tea with Steve McQueen. That's a little family legend. Oh, uh, that's awesome. Uh, yeah, that's I think. great. Um, but yeah, the city is way different. So you were then, so you moved out to Sausalito, but then. Uh, you would, you would, you and your buddies would probably like go in the city all the time then. Um, I mean, I mean it's right across the bridge, right? Like, yeah, but it, not in the same way that you would think. I mean, there was a lot to love about just being in Marin. I didn't crave city life that much. Right. Um, for example, like I was never like a punk rocker, so I missed all that stuff that was happening back then, the Babu Hay and the Gilman and Dead Kennedys and none of that stuff penetrated my world at all. What were you into then? I was listening to The Grateful Dead. I dropped a bunch of acid in 1981 and went to a dead show, and that was sort of it for me. I right. just did that for the next, like, seven or eight years. And your friends were like that, too? They were into that, too? Some of that, some of them were. I didn't. Have, I had a couple of friends who were, like, into punk rock, um, but most of them, most of my friends, yeah, we were just doing drugs and going to Grateful Dead shows. And You're kind of surfing. in this, like, weird, like kind of time capsule on the other side of the bridge like not interested in what was happening yeah at the time but more interested in the what had happened in the 60s or 
70s or whatever. That's kind of right. I mean, partly also when you're in Marin, like it was this sort of wonderland. You know, we used to hang out in Bolinas, which is the town where they knocked down the, the sign that tells you how to get there. Right. It's never been up for 24 hours in history. Right. Because, and it's not like kids going out there. It's like crotchety old dudes go out there and chainsaw the thing down every time they put it back up. <laughs> sure. That's just like, we don't really, not interested in what you, we don't want you, we don't want to know you. Can you not find it with like Google Maps or something? No, or? you can. But oh, yeah. okay. Back in the day. Back that, in like, the day. You was, couldn't find the fucking place because they cut yeah, down there was all no the sign. Right. Yeah. So we just wanted to go, it's a good place to grow up to be a surfer because- um, well, there were no really people surfing back then in that area. Not very, very few in the seventies yeah. um, and eighties. So how did you find out about it? Um, I mean, I don't, how do you find out? I don't know. The knowledge popped up Yeah. and, uh, and there was a surf shop in Stinson beach, live water, Kirby Ferris's surf shop. And, um, I think my friend Petey Govins owns that place now, but. It's still out there, but I bought a um, a seven four Yater gun. That was my first board, and yeah, we just used to hitchhike over the hill. It was like twelve, thirteen. We'd hitchhike over the mountain and go surfing all the time. That was safe to do back then, you know, because my buddy lived in Mill Valley, which is right on the other side of the hill. Sure. So we'd hop in the back of pickup trucks and head over the mountain and surf Stinson and Bolinas and. Then later on, we'd surf the other spots whose names I can't say on a podcast. How come? Because people get pissed off if you, if you reveal these? Nah, I mean, I was raised to keep secrets. Yeah. There's actually a couple spots in that area that I literally have never said the name of, even to people that I go surfing there with, even like the day. It's just like... like it's like saying uh, Macbeth. Yeah, in, in, a, in, in a, a theater. theater for all you actors out there. Right. <laughs> it's just not done. It's just like bad luck, kind of. Well, yeah, but there's or a superstition. reason behind it. There's a, it's more than superstition. You're just concerned that somebody, like, if you find oil in your backyard and you don't want everybody to come and steal your shit, you just stay quiet about it. You just enjoy the oil. Right. That's how that worked. Yeah, I mean, I remember talking to you about that um uh, what was it? Is it Red Man? Is that the videos or whatever? Oh, Run Man. Run Man, not Red Man. Yeah. Run Man. Uh, and, and, and sort of that uh, early kind of Malibu scene. And what what was the name of the area that, that got, like, washed away? Because I remember finding this, like, photocopied uh, little zine mm-hmm. at, uh, like, a burger joint in Santa Monica. And it was all about these guys that grew up. Uh, in the scene, and then and then that area, that whole little town got washed away or eroded. Remember that? Mm. It's like by Malibu, but it was like the same thing where it was like you weren't allowed to go there. I don't remember the erosion, but there the there, there's a story in in the uh, magazine Sweet Segway that um, about Point Doom, which is not, it wasn't washed away, but but back in the 70s and 80s, first of all. Before the 80s, it was private. It was owned by this one guy, Roy Crummer, right. like a land developer. I'm not totally clear on why he never developed the land, but he didn't. And um, But so then there were a few families that lived out there, and it was like kind of a shitty place to live. Like you, it was 
cheaper to live there than it was to live anywhere in Santa Monica, even like the not nice parts of Santa Monica. Right. So it was like kind of slummy. And um, I mean, not slummy. It was like hillbilly. It was, it was like white trash dudes. Totally. So you had like the cholos on the east side and then like you had like the black dudes down in the south and then you had like kind of more of the white trash dudes over on that side of the west side or whatever, not the nice side. Exactly. Yeah. Way west. Yeah, way west. And so that was the... Um, it, so the culture that developed around there, the surfing culture, was white trash. Right. They had speed metal bands. They had monster trucks. You know, there were the older guys who had a little group called the Point Doom Bombers, which is like a, their little club. It's kind of a joke and kind of not a joke. Right. You might get hit in the face with a wine bottle if you did the wrong thing. Um, or they'd throw a a brick through your window. They call it a parking brick. <laughs> if you were parked there and they didn't know you. Um, but, uh, so those guys went off to Vietnam. The, the, the guys who were the locals in the sixties and they got drafted and they came back and they had PTSD and some of them had drug problems and they also knew karate. Right. <laughs> Right? Those are the locals. Because it's like the 80s? And everyone no, was... that's the 70s. Okay. Yeah, so yeah. everyone's so just, getting got... in, just getting into karate then. Well, yeah. So they 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 just gotten back from Vietnam and they'd been trained in karate right out there. And then they brought... Hand-to-hand -hand combat. Hand-to-hand. -hand. Yeah. And so they brought that back and started teaching the Groms. And they literally had... In the spot on the cliff now, this is where Kenny G's house is now, on the cliff at Point Doom... Right, probably a twenty million dollar house or whatever it is now. It was empty. There's nobody cared to live there. There was a uh, shack that they had built. It was like a dojo. <laughs> yeah. That they made, and the older guys had the Groms go steal the lumber from construction sites. Yeah. Go skate out tonight and steal the lumber, and then bring it back, and then they nailed it together, and they made this little dojo. And they were teaching the Groms karate so that they could protect the spot going forward. Right. So that anybody who lived, even if you live 400 yards down the beach, like if you live near Paradise Cove, there's a little hut down there, you're not allowed to surf Point Doom. Like right. It was fucking serious. There yeah. was a boundary. And everybody know where everybody lived. It was a very small community. And those that shit was like protected. And... uh and upstairs in the dojo, there's this guy, Jojo Perrin, who is a really good shaper, and he was shaping boards upstairs, and then downstairs they had the dojo. And that's literally, you know, some of the most desirable real estate right. in the world is right. right there. And these guys are just hanging out there and building shamble shacks and teaching each other karate to fight off the interlopers. <laughs> that was how that went back then. And then over time, as attitudes and minds erode and change, Kenny G is allowed to live there. Yeah. Yeah. That's a sad thing. Yeah, because I was thinking about it, you know, I, there's a, what's the area down in, um, down south, uh, Palos Verde. Oh man, it's getting so much play right now. Yeah. What, what's the deal that, what, what I was going to say is that just like, you know, I was thinking about it and you hear these stories and like, you know, I'm out there like. Every once in a while in Malibu on my wave storm and, you yeah. know, <laughs> this little kid surfs up to me, he like paddles over. He's like, 
he's like maybe like six or something. He's like, Hey man, you catching any waves? I'm like, ah, I'm trying, you know? And I was like, how, how are you doing? He's like, ah, I'm doing all right. And I, I'm like, cool. He's like, Hey, is that a wave storm? <laughs> I'm like, yeah. He's like, Oh, my mom still surfs one of those. <laughs> <laughs> I love a wave storm. <laughs> well, I'm just thinking a lot of respect for the wave storm. Yeah. It's, approach. Not, it's, it's, you know, I'm at, I'm at the age now and I, and I haven't been surfing long enough that I just don't even fucking care. Sure. I'm not going to take it out to like, I'm not going to try to like go down to Point Doom or something and impress anybody, but. Right. So what's the Palos Verdes situation though? And, well, and how do you feel about that? I'm just curious. It's very complicated. I know yeah. people on both sides of that conversation. Right. Well, that's what I'm saying is like, I have if we good get, friends who grew up there and surfed there. And then I have good friends who are, think the whole thing is ridiculous and right. trying to like break it open. But the basic thing is like, it's a. It's like the one of the last really known localized spots in California where right. there's a crew of people that have, depending on how you look at it, either earned their way into that lineup or are born there and don't want anybody else to surf there. It's a, no clear perspective on that one. Depends on who you talk to. But it's tough to surf there. It's hard to be a person who gets waves at that place. Right. And um, and people are angry about that. And also, it's a super wealthy neighborhood. So people are mad because it's they, they're like, oh, you guys are entitled. Right. Which is easy to see that. And there's a long history of, like, really shitty behavior, like people throwing rocks at each other and, like, da-da-da-da-da. Like, that same kind of stuff they used to have in a Point Doom, right? Right. But... I don't know the way I look at it. Um, I mean, I think it's fundamentally different. I do, but there are similarities in that, like there's a hierarchy there and some people are like, Oh, those are just a bunch of old dudes who don't know how to surf and they're just being shitty to people who want to go and surf there. And that's not okay. And then, and that's, maybe that's true. I don't know. I've never tried to surf the place. Right. But um but then like so there's this mythologized point doom localism, right? Which seem it seems kind of right to me. It's like, yeah. oh, that's the way it should be. And then there's this place where on the one hand it seems kind of right because I know somebody who is one of those guys mm -hmm. and he's super cool, great guy definitely earned his way into the lineup there for years and years and is from there. Right. And it was a pain in the ass for him to surf there for years. And then there's other people who are like, you know what? Fuck that. That's bullshit. You know, it's 2016. We're supposed to just go places and the ocean belongs to everybody. Sure. Which is kind of more the inertia idea in a way. But so here's the other thing though. So think about I it think like when this. Kenny G moves in, <laughs> then you have to kind of go like, well, I guess it should it should belong to everybody at that point. I mean, so you would think that, but then think about the guy who's been surfing there since the 60s. Sure. He doesn't feel that way. Right. So now there are people who can't surf that paddle out to the top of the point at Point Doom and burn the locals. Right. And and you're like, well, is that really right? There's a 14-year-old guy who goes out there on his sup, whose dad's a lawyer, and who's got a $10 million house on the bluff that they bought a year ago. He's like, this is my fucking spot, man. Back off. And there's a guy, you know, Tom Daniels is out there, who's been a local out there since literally the 70s. Right. And if he 
was unchained by the law would rip that tiny kid's head off. Right. You know? Well, that's what I'm saying. No, I'm, I'm, I'm agreeing with you. I was thinking about it today. It's like, I'm thinking like, if, you know, if you've been there your whole life and then, and, and you've been doing something and then these people come in because they have money to do so. Yeah. And now they're fucking up this thing you've been doing forever. You'd be pissed no matter what. You know? Totally. It's the same with, you know, uh, Latino guys and Hispanic people like on the east side of town being like, fuck, why are all these white people are moving into our house? Because, yeah. you know, it's the same. It's just a different It's surfing. It's always sad when it happens to your town. Right? right. I feel the same way about San Francisco. Right. Like when I was growing up, Ocean Beach was a place. I feel that way about San Francisco. Most people didn't know that there was surf there. Right. It, you, it was a weird thing to do to surf there in the early 80s. All of the 80s, mostly. There was like one surf shop. Almost nobody surfed out there. It was like, you know, it's cold as fuck and intimidating. And you didn't, like, it was, nobody knew that that was a thing to sharks. do. And sharks. Sure. Yeah. And then, and now, you can't even live near the beach in San Francisco. If you have any kind of regular salary, you can't live anywhere in San Francisco. And there's shit tons of people that surf out there. And there's like nine surf shops. And it's like a whole thing to do. It's just, so that's sad. Yeah. Because that nice time is gone. I, I mean, so, but the point I was going to make, I don't know, this might be too heady, but like, you think about religion. The religions that started like 2,000 years ago or more started in such a hazy, distant time of history that it's easy to just be like, oh, that's what that is. But then there's like Scientology and Mormonism, and we know everything about how those things started. Sure. And they just seem like a weird fucking cartoon. Right. And you're like, that whole They're shit is ridiculous. They're not old enough. That's the problem. Yeah. Like, <laughs> the, history hasn't burnished any of that stuff into being like, eh, whatever. It's yeah, fine. Totally. You know? So, um, I, in a way, that localism conversation is sort of similar to me, because the like 70s and Point Doom, like, it really feels, okay, that's legit. Right. And then the current thing that's going around in PV is that's much dicier conversation for me because it's happening now. Right. Well, and it's also different. It's like, you know, when, when you can whip out your phone and film somebody throwing rocks at you or whatever. And, yeah. You know, put it yeah. on YouTube, then everybody can comment and whatever. Totally. And it just all becomes fucking b bullshit and into the big fucking bullshit washing machine at some point. It's Such all, a mess. It's just all content. Yeah. <laughs> Everything's content. <laughs> Speaking of which, so anyway, I mean, that, 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 that thanks for telling me about that, but that, that was kind of not the impetus for interviewing you, but it's, it's sure is interesting and it ties into the magazine, which we'll get to. But so my question is, so like, I mean, your main fucking thing you're doing is photography, right? Like mm -hmm. that's your main thing. Mm -hmm. So did that, was that bred out of like filming your buddies skating or music or going to dead shows or surfing or what, how did that come about? No, not at all. Cause I was, a um, I, I had a camera when I was a little kid because my dad liked to take photos. But then, because really... your dad's an artist, so your mom's an artist too, right? No, I, my, my my dad was an architect, but my mom is not an artist. She's okay. like a they're art world people, right? They're on the board of the art institute and the museum, and all their friends were artists, and we basically like grew up inside the art institute in, in San Francisco and stuff. But um, so they're art world people, but neither of them really consider themselves artists. Right. But I. Um, then I was a drummer, and that was kind of my first life, not just going on tour and playing in drums and bands and stuff. And so 
you know, you go to a town where you don't know anybody, you work for 40 minutes, mm-hmm. and then you're fucking bored, right? Yeah. So uh, I got a camera, and I just started taking pictures. Right. That's how that started. It's like the Dennis Hopper story. Kind of, yeah. I'm not as good a photographer like a, as Dennis Hopper was, I don't think, but like, well, yeah, the idea I want like, to romanticize myself, that's definitely, yeah. Just well, the bored. idea of being on set and being bored or whatever, I must just mm-hmm. do something while I'm waiting to... Totally. Do what the reason I'm here or whatever. Yeah. So you just started taking photos. Yeah. And then being in bands and not making any money at it got, I got too old to do that. Right. After fucking 15 years or something. What kind of bands were you playing in though? Um, I mean, I played in a kind of a bunch of different bands. Like when I lived in San Francisco, I played in a couple of punk bands and then I played in, I was actually in, um, the Aliens, Rocky Erickson's band for a short time. Really? Yeah. I didn't know that. He was in an insane asylum, so I was with the other guys. Uh-huh. And they were, for some reason, they were camped out in Marin. So uh-huh. I played in the Aliens for about nine months. Wow. Did um, you guys record anything? No. No. Man, those guys are fucking weird. Yeah? The dude with the auto harp, <laughs> man. So I don't know what his deal is. <coughs> um, but we would play a show, and almost every single time, he would spend the entire show fucking with like his pedal board and never play a note right it was uh, like grabbing his hair and moving things around nothing would work and then we'd be done but when i got to play i walk with the zombie a whole bunch of times so it's fucking that's great what was rocky doing while the dudes over there on the pedal board rocky was not with us rocky was in texas in a and in a oh okay it's just me and the aliens i got it was no figurehead i get it yeah okay the other guys sang wow yeah. Weird. It was weird. Did you guys like play out of town or just in San Francisco? Mostly in San Francisco. Yeah. yeah. What year was this? Fuck. Like 90, I don't know exactly. I want to say like 90, 90, 91, 92, somewhere around. I got to look this up and see if Early it, 90s. It, it's got to be like footage, right? God, maybe. <laughs> That'd be weird. <laughs> I've never tried to find it. It's a different time. It was before cell phones, and so not a lot of people. I want to see. You gotta, I, really I didn't even know that that like existed like that. Yeah, yeah, that's crazy. So I did that, and then like because it was San Francisco, I played in a bunch of. I played blues a bunch, you know. I sure. Like the blue lamp. So and, you were just playing to just play. You didn't even like. For instance, you were saying you weren't a punk rocker, but you were playing like in punk rock bands, though. Mm-hmm. Just because you wanted to hang out and play. Yeah, I love music. Yeah, I love rock and roll. Yeah, and then uh, and then I got in kind of a rock and roll band, and we moved to L.A. The thing that happened, this was a, so San Francisco, I think totally is a shadow of its former self. Sure. It has been. It sucks. Totally. But I, so it was that way for me in 99 when I moved down here because like right before that four clubs had closed on Haight Street, like the, the tide was turning already back right. then, right? Like the I-Beam closed, the Thirsties, wherever there was, there was Full Moon Saloon, there were like four clubs, rock clubs that just were gone. 99. In a year. 98 or 99. Yeah. They all closed. That's like when I first went to San Francisco and I was like, whoa, it's so gnarly here. Like, <laughs> it's over from Seattle. Like, and you're like, this place is over. Yeah. Oh, fucking well, here's what happened. Starbucks. So that, that was like first wave of, of internet companies, right? Right. And so they were, the South of Market, they were building, quote unquote, live workspaces to try to get around the fact that that place wasn't zoned for residential, mm-hmm. but people wanted to live in lofts in the cool area. Right. 
So the city let them build these things that they were supposed to work and live in, but they didn't work there. They worked at whatever internet company they worked at so that they could afford a three-quarter million dollar loft in 1998. But they built them across the street from the Paradise Lounge, which was like the rock club back then. Right. One of them. And uh, so we started getting noise complaints by how loud we were playing. So the club was going to lose its liquor license. The last time I played the Paradise Lounge... They came in during sound check. The guy had a decibel meter. He's like, you guys are too loud. It's like, fuck this fucking city, man. Yeah. And I was raised to hate Los Angeles. Right. Yeah, me too. And people from being, I grew up in Portland originally and in Seattle. And like, yeah. we just, you're like LA, fuck LA. You know, fuck that was LA. our whole thing. It's full of a bunch of shallow assholes. Yeah. I literally, up through high school, thought everything from Santa Barbara to Mexico was all LA. It was like <laughs> just some big weird sprawl full of assholes. Right. They were shallow and didn't care about cool stuff. Yeah. But then we started touring down here. Like, we'd come down once a month, we'd play Spaceland. You we'd, found out you were right. Yeah. I hate everybody here. <laughs> Linda's Doll Hut, we play the Casbah, right? And then we go home, and I was like, that was actually kind of cool. Everybody's nice and like doing weird, interesting stuff. Yeah. So we moved down here. What was the band called? That was called Orange. Uh-huh. And then, um, and then I started playing in a band called Tim Paco when I moved down here after that. And uh, well, I have a couple other bands in between. And that band like got signed to Warner's, but then we broke up before the record came out, so it no music exists. Perfect, perfect. Fucking, that's, that's the smart to, play, kids. That's the way to do it. That's the punk rock play. That's right. Make the music. Don't let anybody hear it. That's right. Get paid. Yeah. We didn't even get paid. Yeah. No, I know. That's paid. what I'm saying. Good job. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> that is basically the story of my music career. So then it's time to fucking shoot some film, which is going to, you know, that's going to last forever doing that. That's like, right. Yeah. So. And as the drummer, you don't make any business decisions. Right. So, but when I push the button... Or you shouldn't, camera, though. No, well, that's right, because yeah. I'm not the smart one. Right. But I don't... Now I own everything. When I push the button, it's me. And so you started out shooting, what, just bands? No or? fucking crazy singer-guitar player dudes <laughs> fucking up my shit anymore. I believe it, yeah. Oh, just man. models. Those guys. Uh, just models and uh, They're stylists. They're not in charge. They're not in charge. No. I'm in charge. Who's in charge on the photo set? Me. The photographer? Fuck yeah. Unless there's a client there, and then the client's <laughs> in charge. <laughs> and then I'm a bitch again. But <laughs> so you started out shooting like bands and stuff, but like, how, did you did you know you wanted to do it like commercially ever? Like, how did that come about? Like, no, when no. does it go from... Like, Honestly, like, I started taking pictures of music because I just wanted to go to more shows. Right. And I used to like sneak my... I had this little Contax T3, which is a tiny camera, and I would sneak it into my pants so that I could take pictures at shows, you know? And then I found out that there were like magazines that would get you into the show for free and you could take pictures. I was like, oh, that's for me. Right. So I started doing that. Which magazines was this? Like Flipside or like, or was that? No, LA Record. Okay. And then right before that. LA was, Record? Yeah. That, that's only been around a couple years though. 10 years. Oh, that's right. I guess it is 10 years. Yeah. I sold their first ad actually. Get out of here. Yeah. Oh, gee. Yeah. So it has been 10 years. Mm-hmm. It's fucking crazy. Yeah. I met Ziegler like 15 years, 16 years ago, maybe. What was he doing back then? Same shit. For who, though? <laughs> I think it was for like maybe the... 
I don't know, like Phoenix Tribune or so, I don't know, some sort of Tucson Weekly or some <laughs> some shit like that. Was like, he in Tucson? I think so. He was either in Tucson or he was in like or maybe OC Weekly or something like that. He he's from Arizona though, so okay. How did you hook up with those guys though, the LA record? Because so, uh, explain to me what you got, what your, that specific thing that you guys do every issue. Now, yeah, um, the centerfold thing. Oh, so there's it's not a thing I started because they that magazine started with uh, Charlie Rose, right? Chris and I think Dan Monick was in right at the very beginning. Oh wow, okay. And so the the beginning thing was Dan was shooting every issue which was i think less often than they happen now but um and it was that giant fold out that's why they call it la's biggest music magazine because you could fold it out it was this huge poster right but so they would shoot a recreation of a classic album cover every time yeah with a current band and they did like maggot brain they did all this really cool shit and they would you know dan's technical good photographer so they would match all the light all perfect and build a little set and everything like they actually had with maga brain somebody's head coming out of dirt and all that shit yeah and uh so then i started working with them i don't know six years ago or something like that and um and so we that's what we do i i sort of have become the guy who shoots most of those now these days and so we yeah we hook up with the band that kind of feels like they're excited about things and want to do something weird because they have to bring all the props and stuff right you know and then we uh they i don't know chris kind of suggests a, a type of band or like a, maybe who he thinks would be inspiring for them or whatever and then they pick the album and they so and then I, it's just my job to kind of reframe everything and and um recreate that stuff that's what we did with the yeah, dude, we, Bromerica. We did the <laughs> white press one, <laughs> which was rad because Chris called me like, "Fuck, like I don't know, a couple of days before." Yeah, and I think like, I think sometimes like you said, they're like they had an idea for a band or something, and and I think we got in there in one of those uh, cases where it was like we need a band kind of thing. Yeah, because it was like the very last minute, <laughs> but it was like the Wipers, and I was fucking psyched because yeah, it's like one of my favorite bands. Yeah, you already had a connection there. Yeah, he's good at that though. Yeah, no, he knew. You know, it wasn't yeah. like it wasn't like he's just like, hey, you guys are gonna dress up like the wipers. It's like, like I said, I known the guy for like right sixteen years. I met him at South by Southwest. Nice. And I thought he was just like this crazy kid, you know. But here we are. We're still just a bunch of crazy kids. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, so that's. I mean, but obviously that's not like that's like not a day job. That's like a fucking couple times a year, right? Four yeah, times a year. Four times a year. Yeah. So you're like I've been shooting for free for Chris for the whole time. Yeah, yeah. He doesn't have any money. Yeah. So how do you make money doing photography then? Um, it depends. Uh, I shoot. I mean, I shoot for like clothing companies. Um, I shoot album covers. Sometimes I shot a Slipknot album cover last year, and then like I shot this album cover for Bonnie McKee last year. It came out really cool. Um musician portraits stuff like that like if they need pr things right um and then i shoot like lookbooks i shot a campaign for reebok and kitsune did a a collab last year so i shot it that was like a big international i had stuff in kitsune and reebok stores all over the world for that so you know it just kind of depends some of the stuff is it's feature fam in life yeah you know and then sometimes i just shoot like e-commerce to pay the bills Right. Yeah. 
What do you want to shoot, though? Like, I mean, I know you're into, like, cars and motorcycles and stuff. Like, I mean, I guess we should just get into the fucking... You started this magazine. Yeah. And that's kind of... I mean, the magazine's called Animals. Yeah. And it's kind of like... I mean, just from knowing you, it sort of seems like, you know, this is... This is all the stuff that you're into, it's like surf culture, cars, yeah. bikes, fucking... Outlaw California culture. Yeah. Yep. I remember talking to you about it, like, a year and a half, two and a half years ago, I think. Right after we shot the wipers thing. It was that right. day, uh-huh. because that's how I met you. Right. And we were hanging out, and I was like, hey, dude, I got this idea for, like, a magazine. <laughs> Yeah. You know, and you're like, oh, you should totally talk to my girlfriend. She does all that stuff. And I was like, oh, yeah, I, I kind of want to. That's be cool. And then like, I don't know, six months later, we made that connection and Jess came in. And that was fucking two years ago for sure. Right. I met Jess. So, um, but yeah, so the idea was that, that there's not a magazine for us. Right. There's not like, there are a lot of creative, interesting magazine for women sort of recently because there's a fashion driver there as a way to make money on it. But for men, like, I don't know anybody who cares about $20,000 watches or wooden yachts or any of the stuff that they use to sell you GQ and details and all that stuff. So if you grew up doing kind of shitty stuff and are somehow still alive after you're 30, you know, there's not a magazine for you. Right. You know, you probably got some kind of creative career. You got a way to like pay the bills and everything. And you probably need more stimulation than the person who puts on blue shirts and khakis and goes to a cubicle every day. Right. As you're, so there isn't something for us. I agree, man. When I go to the, when I get on a fucking plane, if I've like forgotten to like bring a book or, and I go to the, the Hudson news and try to find um, the only magazine that I want to look at is the fucking gun magazine. There's nothing else. <laughs> There's nothing else for guys. It's like fucking Maxim maybe, which I'm yeah. just like totally embarrassed to be like sitting on the plane, reading a Maxim, like say yeah. some like hot girl sits next to me or, yeah. or, or some old lady or whoever. Yeah. And I'm reading fucking Maxim or it's just like, yeah. GQ or something, and it's just like a bunch of fucking ads in the back, like tr- selling you pants. Yeah. So I just get like fucking guns and ammo. It's depressing. And then no one wants to sit next to you on the plane if you're reading guns and ammo. That's actually fine. <laughs> <laughs> I needed extra, I need a little elbow room on the plane. Yeah. Um. So this is, I mean, I want to be the guns and ammo magazine, right? But you know, broaden the focus a little bit because that's the, the idea is. There's, I mean, there's a lot of different ideas, but the basic one is that like there, there isn't something that speaks to us in any kind of meaningful way. But magazines are going like, I mean, magazines are going by the wayside because of the internet and things like that. And, and I, I feel like recently, like not recently, but I feel like the internet is really starting to go by the wayside too. And then, and the, you know what I mean? <laughs> and left well, Instagram. And the, yeah. Or diff, well, I don't even fucking look at Instagram anymore, man. It's so fucking boring to say the same fucking shit over yeah. and over again. But, um, <laughs> I mean, I look at yours every once in a while. But <laughs> Thanks, dude. I can't be bothered to like something anymore. I think maybe that's the problem. But what I'm saying is like, even the internet where I felt like I used to like go on these kind of, wormholes or the find yeah. these portals of like interesting writing whether it was about music or film or you know now it's like these like every even those things have like 20 celebrities with stds at the bottom mm. that you click on to like these like clickbait things you know so even yeah. the internet's starting to go shit yeah 
and 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 magazines are gone. So what? How do you justify starting a, a magazine when the cost is? I can't justify it. <laughs> I can't <laughs> justify doing anything at this point. I can't. Point. Here's the thing. I worked. I worked as many jobs as I could possibly work, three times as many jobs as I should have. I slept an average of like three to four hours a night a whole last year. How long did it take from conception? Two years, basically? More. Well, conception is probably like five years. Yeah. The first idea, I was talking to my buddy Tate, who used to work at Vans. And the guy just licensed the fucking zigzag song yeah. to the Reef. Yeah. I, I Thank had, you. I, yeah, you bet. Thank I was you. like, you got to fucking get the zigzag shit. Yeah. And he listened to it. He's like, yes, I do. So, yeah. Um, he, yeah, he, he's good a guy. creative director at Reef now and a good guy. And he, um, so he and I talk about stuff and I was like, oh, dude, we need a magazine. Like the people need a fucking magazine. He's like, yeah, you should do it. But so getting from there to here took a long fucking time. Right. And just from that conversation with you and me on the couch, I was already thinking about it, but then it took another two and a half years after that to where it really got out. Two years. So, did you know Jessica, my girlfriend, before then? Or? No. Oh, oh, okay. So I said, "Oh, the, you got to meet this chick, and like, yeah, she'll know what to do." Yeah, and she did. So, and I've got a partners, the Uprising Creative, who do. And um, at first, they were kind of my bona fides, trying to look for money, so it wasn't just me in my house going, "Guys, I've got a great idea. <laughs> Give me a bunch of cash." <laughs> They've got like a real company that's worth several million dollars or whatever it is, you know? So like, those guys are in charge, right? Right. And really, they haven't done shit. They laid out the magazine, which is beautiful. Other than that, I did everything. Uh, up until the point that Jess and, uh, and then she introduced me to JC. And so the two of them- I'm sorry. Were, they're, no, but there's <laughs> the tornado. <laughs> the, but the two of them are my, again, like, that's Ward, my, what's going on? <laughs> I, I just got here. Sorry, I'm so sweaty. <laughs> I gotta have JC uh, on yeah. actually. You but, should because I just sit here. You and won't have to do anything. I want to talk. Nap. <laughs> he, um, but the two of them, like obviously, have, are so experienced and and solid in in the world of journalism. And I have nothing except an idea, right? So that was really helpful. You need these people, you I know. Do, of course, yeah. yeah. So Not that, just you. I'm just saying everyone needs these people to like. Yeah. Actually, fucking like JC's like, oh, this is how much it's going to cost to print the thing, right? I yeah. needed to know that. <laughs> I think Jess has introduced me to every other writer and photographer that's in the magazine, you know, save for one or two. So, like, um, yeah, they know that world. They've done it a lot. And um, and then I have my ideas, and I'm like, no, nothing needs to work that way. And they're like, yeah, it kind of does. Anyway, so. So you're like the editor, though. That's your job. Or you're the. I don't know. What do you I mean? I, my title is publisher? the editor-in-chief. Got I don't it. know what the right title is i just know that it's my thing and if i don't do everything nothing will happen so that's the job that it is sure um so we're one wish one issue in then yeah so we're one issue is out and distributed i think we have like 20 doors right now at international it's good like we're working with this company a friend of mine elliot graver's company uh, money ruins everything and they distribute like born and raised and raised by wolves and um Black scale, I think, bunch of kind of like high end streetwear brands, right. but they're in like the the best boutiques all over the world. Right. So, um, my friend Jeff Martin walked me into Union. That was our first door, and so Union is carrying it in, on La Brea, and they're like all excited about it, and they're great, Chris and Rick, and and then um, 
and then Elliot got us into like this place, general admission in Venice. And then we're in, um, Kith in New York and Bodega in Boston and Slam Jam in Italy. And we're in Colette in Paris and we're in some places. I've been there once. Have you? Yeah. Paris or Colette? Both. Wow. <laughs> I've been to Paris more than once. I've been to Colette once. So. Is it cool? I've never been. Yeah, it's cool. There's like, you know, it's like, uh, I don't know. Jess had something there. She, she had a film that she made and they played it there. And so it's like, you know, it's like fucking shoes and then like toy robots and like shit in your magazine. Yeah. You know, sitting there. That's know. our, that's our people, <laughs> exactly. you know? And then I'm trying to think out of the box. Like, uh, um, I'm working on getting into a high end weed dealership, you know, like I want to be in places where people have some money, but and it might be surprised to see something cool that they would like be interested in, but not so be surprised by a magazine rather than be somewhere where there are a bunch of magazines. Right. So we're in also in a, you should get into Hudson news at the airport. I think, you know what? That would be surprising. (laughs) It would be, (laughs) I actually kind of would do that. But the thing is that you can't, I know the distribution models are fucked. You get 72% off the cover price out the door. And that's like with a good, set up like jc has a deal with i think it's dap like they're the oldest independent book distributor in the country and he knows them and they work together and the best they can do is 72 percent off the cover price they take like out of the gate right and then that's why you don't see any fucking magazines there except for men's health and gq and yeah because who can afford it and then if you and they're all owned by the same fucking company anyway so whatever and so then if you have a 30% sell through, you're like killing it. Mm-hmm. So that means that you throw away 70% of what you make. That's like doing really well. Right. Fuck that. Well, I mean, it's like anything else. It's like, I mean, a beer is like one thing, but that, that's starting to change now. Like everyone's like getting into like craft beer and stuff. And, mm-hmm. but you know, the reason why, you go everywhere and you see Budweiser's because they buy the fucking shelf space, right. you know, or yeah. or any pro- any of these products like Nabisco or whatever. They have endless amounts of money, so they're just buying the shelving space and putting whatever they want there. Yeah. So if you're if you want to make something and get it out, you have to think of another way. I yeah. was the initial plan was to go into American Apparel shops because I have a friend who is had been working there forever since the beginning, but um, <laughs> then Dove got ousted and now they're stupid. And uh, so that's not going to happen. Right. But they, so, but if we could find kind of a store that's like that, that is a little off kilter the way we are and has a tolerance for racy, aggressive content. So we're we're looking into that kind of thing, and then like looking to make deals with kind of hip hotels where you could put something in in every room, and yeah. that would help them be cool, and we get it out there. So we're working on that kind of stuff. Too. Yeah, it's interesting. It's just interesting to think about all that stuff these days with like just music or art or anything in general that used to be sort of worth something that now people expect for free. Yeah, and how do you navigate that? You know, totally. And I think that. The flip side of that is that people who make a limited edition colored vinyl, that shit sells out at totally. $20 a piece. Totally. So if you can show some kind of value in a in a hard uh, – because people can download that fucking track. Totally. But if they have the little colored you know, pin art vinyl, 
they're they're that's worth something to them right. to have, and they feel cool having it, and that's value. So people pay for that, right? People, but ha- there's only so many. But when you're doing a limited edition like that too, there's only so much money you can make as the band. Uh, say you only do 500. Yeah, costs you five bucks a piece. Or maybe a little bit more, five to eight bucks for the record. Yeah, you can only expect to sell them for like fifteen to twenty, and then that's like a lot of people sell them for like forty bucks. <clears throat> they sell them on eBay for like forty bucks. The people that bought them the first time, those dicks. Well, that's what I'm saying though. Like here's, and then this is but the problem is is unethical for me to say press five hundred records and then sell them each for a hundred dollars on eBay, one at a time. Can I do that? Sure, why not? Because people just get pissed off about shit like that. Yeah, whatever. Yeah, I mean, maybe it's time to just say fuck it all. Yeah. Burn it down. I, that's the big idea. All right. It already has been burned down, Jed. That's what we're doing here. That's why we're on a we're, podcast we're and not on the radio. We're building it back up. <laughs> <laughs> it's over. But, yeah, so I, and this may be naive, but, like, I believe that there is a, a way to get out there and find the people that need this stuff there's maybe not millions of them right no but there's definitely a few thousand of them sure and the the people who need this magazine this kind of content like they need to be told stories about things that they're not hearing about they're kind of radical and fucked up but also told in a way that's thoughtful and empathetic and and curious and like without any shame or guilt like let's talk about everything let's talk about something that makes you feel weird like i want to talk about that you know and a lot of times those are the people who have a lot of stuff that they feel ashamed or guilty about tend to show up in these weird aggressive subcultures you know like a lot of those gutter punk kids man if you peel away the layers They've got some sad story to tell you. Of course, yeah. You know, so it's like uh, talking to a porn star or something. Like it is, yeah, right. You're like, oh man, that porn star is cool, and then you're like, oh man, I feel really. Can I give you a hug? (laughs) Yeah, here's a puppy. (laughs) And 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 in a lot of ways, that's true. The guys like in motorcycle clubs and stuff. Maybe not so much anymore. There's a lot of like weird. Well, there's a lot of those guys that work at coffee shops too. So yeah. (laughs) <laughs> I, my joke is that I have a local biker gang called the Baristas. But <laughs> I feel like says there's some of those big the- clubs now where you're just like they're, they're just like the worst people. They're like <laughs> such limp biscuit fans, you know. <clears throat> and uh, yeah, and back in the day, they were again. There's with the history. They, it was just so easy to romanticize that stuff. Now I don't think it means shit. But um, but that that in general, those sort of cultures that are out of the mainstream. They, there's a lot of, there's a lot to pay attention to there. Right. And it's nice because it's wrapped in this bombastic package where they're like aggressive and like fuck you and stuff. So that's like the kind of the dual meaning of the title of the magazine. It's like animals is tough and dudes and we're kicking ass. Death comes ripping. Right. And then also like a, like we're just animals and we're running around doing weird shit. And I'm curious about that. Like, I'm really curious about what people are up to. And then like, we live and we die and we're not like regular raccoons. We're so weird fucking raccoons. Like we do weird stuff and we've, then we feel weird about it. We don't want to tell people. We yeah, dedicate do our things to feel guilt. 
God, if they know. if they eat all your cat food, they don't really seem like it. I don't They're, feel like they feel guilty about that. They kind of like eat your cat food and then like stare at you about <laughs> yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> so like, if you like go to a bar and just like knock some motherfucker out and then just stare at everyone in the bar <laughs> afterwards, that would be like more like a raccoon that or an very, animal. Very raccoon-like behavior. Yeah. Well, Ward, you're on the second issue now. When's it coming out? Uh, July 14th. Good. Yeah. Well, I hope it all works out. Thanks, dude. I hope you get in those stores. Yeah. I want to see you in Hudson News next time I'm flying out of Bob Hope Airport. Just let me know when and I'll run ahead of you and put one in there. (laughs) Sounds good. All right, man. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks, Chad. All right. Well, that was Ward Robinson. I want to thank you guys all for listening. I think we we learned a lot today about... um, well, about surfing, surf culture, the the do's and don'ts, getting in the water, some mystical places where you may or may not want to go travel to see. Yeah, I don't know. It's a big topic. It's like, I get out there and I'm on my fucking Costco board, as I said, and foam board and... I gotta say, I feel a little intimidated out there, and I'm just trying to learn. I'm not trying to get in anyone's way, but you know, when it's like anything else, it took. We, we went up to OI this weekend, and we went surfing, and, and and my buddy came up there with his kid, and he's like six years old, and he's starting to skate, and he got in the skate park, and he's like ripping, he's like killing it. But there were like these parents, and they had like little babies, and they were like. Just walking him around in the middle of the skate park while all these like gnarly dudes are skating. What the fuck is wrong with you? Go to the fucking park. I don't get it. Anyways, as always, I want to thank our producer Jess Hunley and our engineer Adam Wade. That's Jed Banger's ball. We'll see you next time.